Consider our possessions. Possessions can go from something that we have to something that has us. We can lose our focus on our marriage. And we can allow little things to begin tearing away at that marital relationship. Well, the same thing can happen with our faith in Jesus. If we're not careful, even here at church, we'll start to forget why we do what we do. And our faith can turn into something that it was never intended to be. We're going to see this today as we read what Paul wrote to his young friend Timothy, a young pastor, evangelist, a young man of God, the pastor at the church at Ephesus. But first, you need to know a little bit about the people that were in Timothy's church. Because some of these people in Timothy's church were, were false teachers. Some of these people were trying to teach people things counter to what the Bible teaches. And so if you would go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I really want you to follow along with this because I don't want you to take my word for this. I want you to see it in God's word yourself. So if you haven't got your Bibles, use the Bibles in front of you. It's on page 1052. 1052 in the Bibles in front of you. And I'm going to begin reading in the very first verse of 1 Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. To Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. That's where Timothy pastored. Remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification or godly encouragement which is in the faith. See, in the church that Timothy was pastoring, there were people that were trying to get others to get their focus off of things that were really important in the life of a Christian. These false teachers were trying to get others kind of hung up on stuff that was not the main thing. But in our main verse today, Paul shares what's really important as well as sharing the source from which it all flows. So let's continue to read in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. Now the purpose, say purpose. The purpose, that is the goal, the aim, the objective, the main thing. Say main thing. The main thing of the commandment is love. Say love. love. Love from a pure heart 
from a good conscience and from a sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for the righteous person, but for the lawless, the insubordinate, the ungodly, for the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers and for manslayers, for fornicators and for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. Let me begin by answering this very important question. The title of your message today is Keeping the Main Thing the Main Thing. Well, if you're going to keep it, then you've got to know what it is. Amen? So the first thing we need to do is identify what is the main thing. As Paul compares the false teachings with the real ones, he explains that the purpose, the goal, the main thing of God's instruction is love. Love. Now, I want to share with you verse 4 from another translation called The Message. It's a paraphrase, but it does a really good job of kind of summing up what Paul is saying here. It goes like this. Apparently, some people have been introducing fantasy stories and fanciful family trees that digress into silliness instead of pulling people back into the center and deepening their faith in obedience. There when in verse 5, the Bible speaks of a purpose. A purpose for the Bible. A purpose for God's commandment. The goal of our instruction. And Paul is telling us here that this issue of love is the fitting and expected lifestyle for anybody that's going to call themselves a Christian. So if you're going to call yourself a Christian, and you're going to say, yeah, I go to church over there at Bethel, and I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, then it is going to be a fitted and expected lifestyle for you to love God and love other people. The aim the goal, the end result of God's teaching is to help us get to the point where we love God and love our neighbor and where that lifestyle rules the way we live. But in Timothy's church, those false teachers were literally trying to drag people away from the truth, drag them away from that purpose, that goal, and get them focused on things that weren't the main thing. And the main thing is this. Real love is doing. Say doing. Real love is doing what is spiritually best for other people. Real love is doing what is spiritually best for other people. Not just filling their needs, not just filling their belly, not just paying their bills, 
not just caring for them, but doing what's spiritually best for other people. If I can use Miss Diane as an example, Miss Diane does what is spiritually best for Ward by making sure that he is able to fulfill his desire of being here to worship with his church family. And we thank Diane for that. Amen. Real love is doing what's spiritually best for others. This kind of love is not dependent on the object of love, like as, as if they would deserve it or not. There's probably some times when war don't deserve to be loved. Amen, brother? <laughs> so it's not dependent on the object of Diane's love. Rather, it's fully dependent on the one who loves. In other words, this kind of love is not simply matter, a matter of emotion. It's a matter of the will. I choose to love you. Whether you deserve it or whether you don't. You know why? Because God chooses to love me whether I deserve it or whether I don't. We choose to love others. Why? Because we have experienced the unconditional love of God. And we want to transfer that love to other people. If you think for a second that what you believe is right but you don't love those around you, listen, something is drastically wrong. Because the two don't jive. The two don't mesh. You can't be a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ and not love. God loved us while we were still sinners, undeserving, rebellious, and defiant. Jesus died for me when I didn't deserve to be loved, when I didn't deserve a Savior, when I didn't deserve salvation, when I didn't deserve heaven. He died for me. What I must do now is learn to give that love that he's given me to other people. Romans 5, 8, the Bible says, but God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That love that he gives to us, friends, is what we are called to give to other people, whether they deserve it or whether they don't. What is the main thing? The main thing is love. Love. Love for God. Love for people. And what will be the result of God's instruction in your life? If you're paying attention and allow God to have his way and his word in your life, you know what's going to happen? You're going to love. You're going to love God. If you're allowing the instruction of God to fall on a, a receptive heart and a receptive mind, it's going to manifest itself in the way you love. In the way you love God and the way you love other people. And for this love to be real, for this love to be real, it must flow, according to Paul, from three areas. Keeping the main thing the main thing requires our love to flow, first of all, from a pure heart. Did you read it there in verse 5? The purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart. Now, those false teachers in Timothy's church, they were trying to get them focused on external things. They were trying to get people to be religious but have no relationship and all the fruit that abounds from that. They were trying to get people to focus on the rituals 
and the insincere prayers. They were trying to get people to focus on the ceremonies and the traditions instead of what was really important, according to Paul, which was love. Love for God and love for other people. Those Pharisees, the real religious people, boy, they look good on the outside. But they were a hot mess on the inside. But before we go cursing the Pharisees, before we go dogging out those false teachers, how do you look? As I look at you from the outside, man, y'all looking good today. Say, I'm looking good today. Say, I'm looking good today. I'm looking good today. But what's the inside look like? What's the inside look like? You know that, that part of your life that only you and God know. What's that look like? Is it clean? Is that area of your life obedient? Does that secret place overflow with love both for God and for people, whether they deserve it or not? Listen to what Jesus had to say to some of these ultra-religious people of the day. These ultra-religious people who really had rotten hearts. They looked good on the outside, but inside they were a mess. In Matthew chapter 23, I'm going to kind of jump around a little bit. Bear with me. In verse 14, Jesus said to these ultra-religious people, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. I've been accused of making long prayers, amen? I pray they're never under pretense, amen? Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Verse 23, again Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You pay your tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, which are justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to left, have done without leaving the others undone. Verse 25. Woe to you, you ultra-religious church folks, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of extortion and self-indulgence. You're kind of getting in my grill. Amen? Verse 26, blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. Verse 27, woe to you, Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful on the outside, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all manner of uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 
blind Pharisee. First cleanse the inside of the cup and dish so that the outside may be clean also. A pure heart, friends. A pure heart is the fertile ground in which the love that God desires grows. In the Bible, the heart represents the mind, our thoughts, our morality. But what's a pure heart? Well, you have to understand what that word pure means. That word pure in the original language simply meant clean, as opposed to being soiled or dirty. But it had other meanings. Pure also described wheat, wheat that had been removed from the chaff, so only the good part was left. Amen? It, uh, it's kind of like uh, corn that's been removed from the cob, and it's been washed, and it's been cleaned, and all the hairs been removed out of it. What do they call that, those hairs? Yeah, you removed all the hairs from it, and you get it all ready for some delicious creamed corn. You knew this was getting around to food, didn't you? <laughs> Like cream corn. Corn that's prepared for cream corn. Pure was also used of an army. An army that was purified of all the cowards and undisciplined soldiers so that all that was left was the first class fighting men. Pure also was something in which no inferior things were added. It was absolutely clean. It was the real deal. So then a pure heart is a heart, the thoughts and mind and morality that has motives that are absolutely clean, motives that are unmixed. They're true and they're clean. In the heart of a Christian, there should be no desire to show an unbeliever how clever I am. In the heart of a Christian, there should be no desire to lead someone to Christ so that I get another notch on my belt. Won that one. In the heart of a Christian, there should not be any desire to show up the ignorance of a lost person. Instead, our only desire should be to help them, to illuminate their minds, and to lead them into a saving relationship with God. That should be our desire. The Christian is moved only by the love of the truth and the love for people. Jesus said, I am the truth. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But if you're like me, sometimes you get off track. Sometimes we get off track and maybe we start focusing on what I'm doing for God. And I sure did it for you today, Lord. I did good, didn't I, Lord? I sure taught a good class today, Lord. How'd you like that one? That's when we need to be like David. Like David was in Psalm 51 and verse 10, where he said, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast or right spirit within me. See, a pure heart, friend, enables us to love even when you don't get a single thing in return. 
You're going to love God and you're going to love other people. No matter what you get or don't get. That's irrelevant. Because it's love for someone else. Keeping the main thing, the main thing, requires a love to flow from a pure heart. But it also requires that it would flow from a good conscience. Now, I taught at our life group and Wednesday morning Bible study at length about our conscience. And we discovered what a conscience is. Technically, a conscience is that sense that every human being has that promotes us to do what we think is right or criticizes us when we do what our mind says is wrong. Everybody's got one. It's just a matter of do you listen to it or not. But generally speaking, if you do the wrong thing, then you're going to experience a certain amount of guilt about it because you know better. You know you shouldn't have done that. There might be a certain amount of shame or, or remorse. But some people do good things out of a guilty conscience. But doing good is not something they normally do. They're doing it just because they feel guilty. For instance, if you love those who are difficult to love, kind of like Cousin Eddie on Christmas vacation. Y'all know who I'm talking about, right? Cousin Eddie was hard to love, man. He was hard to love. But loving people that are difficult to love is something that they normally don't do. But Paul told Timothy that God desires Christians who will live a lifestyle day in and day out, not from a guilty conscience. He said they'll do it from a good conscience. A good conscience. A blameless conscience. A blameless conscience is one that doesn't insult people. It doesn't offend God by unrighteous living. A blameless conscience does not repulse God or uh, provoke God to anger. It's one that does what we're supposed to do. Instead of guilt, shame, and remorse, a good conscience produces a lot of things. If you've got a good conscience, here's what you can expect you can expect peace in your life. A good conscience will bring you confidence, joy, hope. It will also bring you courage and contentment. And so if you are not experiencing those things, if you're not experiencing those results of a good conscience, then God is trying to get your attention today. Because God wants you to Experience peace and joy and contentment in your life. Again, a blameless conscience doesn't insult God. It doesn't provoke men. It doesn't offend men or women. But some Christians just don't want to change. Some Christians, they just don't want to listen to God. And so what they do is they start retraining their conscience to adapt to what they want to do. They retrain their conscience to what the world wants them to do, what self wants them to do. But a good conscience, the Bible says, will be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. When you have a, a relationship with Jesus Christ, you can have a good conscience, but not before you can have a good conscience that's programmed by the Holy Spirit 
and that is guided by the Word of God. You want a good conscience, friend? Then why don't you get cleansed of all your sins by the blood of Jesus? Why don't you let your, the Holy Spirit program the way you live? And why don't you allow your life to be guided by this book? But to know what's in the book, you've got to crack the book. Amen? Say amen. amen. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, God's word tells us this. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, purify your conscience? Purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Friend, we are called to serve God and to love. To love with a good conscience. We're not called to love because you're compelled to. You're not called to love because God's going to slap you on the hand. You're not called to love because you're compelled to. That would be love that's driven by guilt, by shame. That's not the way he wants us to love him. So keeping the main thing the main thing requires that our love flow from a pure heart and also from a good conscience. But lastly, it should flow from a sincere faith. A sincere faith is simply one that's real. A sincere faith is one that's true. A sincere faith literally is one that's without hypocrisy. A sincere faith is a faith that needs no mask. In other words, you don't have to put on your game face to come to church. You don't have to put on your game face if you're going to go meet up with some other Christians because you're always wearing it. You're living it. A person with sincere faith does not need to put on their game face. You know, one of the big things that led me to recommit my life to Jesus Christ was how my friend Brian Gregg lived in front of me across the hall from my office at Transmart. I was struck by Brian's sincere faith. Brian was by no means perfect. In fact, he had shared with me some pretty serious mistakes that he had made in his life, in his past. But his faith was real. His faith was sincere. There was no pretense. Brian was transparent. He was the real deal. His faith was evident. See, that's what happens when you have a sincere faith. Sincere faith draws people nearer to Jesus. Brian's sincere faith drew me, your pastor, nearer to Jesus. Brian's not the only one. Think about King David for a second. King David had his share of flaws, didn't he? We know all about the sins of King David. But David had a sincere faith. When David realized that he had stepped out of line with God, he was quick, quick to get back on track with God. David didn't gloss over his sin. He didn't gloss over his issues. He didn't say, oh, man, I'll just deal with God later. No, right then, right there, he repented and cleaned up and then moved on. A sincere faith is one that springs forth from an absolute trust in God. You know that God is going to listen to you. 
you know that God is going to forgive you. Too many times we just don't trust God to help us. Too many times we just don't trust that God is powerful enough to change my life. And so if we're going to reveal real love, you've got to learn to trust God. You've got to learn to trust God enough to love as he commands us to love. You say, okay, Bill, how's that? Jesus said it. He said, a new commandment I give you, love one another. Well, that's real good and everything, Jesus, but how am I supposed to go about doing that? A new commandment I give you, love one another. How? As I have loved you, so you love one another. How did Jesus love you? He gave his life for you. How are you to love other people? How are you to love God? Give your life to him. Give your life for the benefit of others. See, the whole attitude of the Christian should be that it's grounded in love. Everything you do, everything you say, all the things you participate in, people will be able to see love in that. And our motives, our motives for doing those things flow only from a foundation of a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. To do otherwise means you're stepping out of line with God. Friend, do you understand how much God loves you? Do you understand how much God loves you? Do you understand that God proved his love for you? And that while you were still a defiant, rebellious sinner, he said, son, Jesus, would you go down there and do something about this? He sent his only begotten son to go live a life for only 33 years and die a criminal's death on a cross like that one. And he did it for you. He did it for me. That is how God loves you. So my question for you today is this. Since Jesus loved you that much, since Jesus loved you so much that he would die for you, would you be willing to live for him? See, he doesn't want you to die for him. He wants you to live for him. How do I do that, Bill? I'm glad you asked. Because the Bible spells out what is called the gospel. It's called the good news. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, he said, Brethren, I declare to you the gospel by which also you are saved. For I delivered to you first of all that which I was also receiving. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Just like the Bible said, Christ died for our sins. And that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day. Just like the Bible said. Just like the scripture said. How do I receive that good news, Bill? Well, Paul wrote to this church, this church that Timothy was pastoring, that church in Ephesus. And here's what he said. 
For by grace, by the grace of God only, only by the goodness of God, have you been saved. How? Through faith. F-A-I-T-H. Forsaking all I trust him. Him being Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, you can't earn it. Not a thing you can do to deserve it. Not of yourself, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then he got really, really specific. When he wrote to the church at Rome, he said, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you will believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, praise God. It's simple, but so hard for people to give up what they think is theirs. See, we're grown and matured to think that our life is our own. We can do, I can do what I want to do. It's not true. You are God's. You belong to him. You were purchased with a price. And that price was the most expensive price there was. The price of the love and the life of the only begotten Son of God. So today, if you want to leave here saved, if you want to leave here born again, if you want to leave here with the understanding and the complete knowledge that you're going to heaven when you die, I want to encourage you during this invitation song, this decision song, that you'll make a decision that since Jesus died for me, I'm going to live for him. You allow the Lord to speak to you. You allow the Lord to make that decision for you. And you just take that step of faith. You do that one, he'll take care of the rest of them. You won't even know that you did it. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for this day and all the days that you have afforded us to live. Father, we know that the days you create are not our own. They are for you, and they should be for your glory. Therefore, Lord, we want to live as your children. We want to live as part of your family. Lord, we want to live as your holy instruments, as your voice boxes, as your hands and feet, and your heart and your voice. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that there's one person even that does not know that they can have the everlasting life that you offer through the death of burial and resurrection of your son Jesus they don't walk out of here unless they know it we can leave here knowing that every one of us is part of the family of God so Lord I pray that you'd give them the courage and the forsaking all I trust him kind of faith to take that first step and allow your word to show them what they can do to be saved Father, for those that have been saved, but this, this message has hit them like a hammer, like a Mack truck, like it did me all week. Father, I pray that whatever decision, recommitment needs to be made, Father, they'd be swift to do it. Thank you for loving us like you do. Even though we didn't deserve it, you loved us.
and you sent your son to save us. For that we're grateful. And we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.